Every Christmas and Easter, it seems, the stories come out in National Geographic, in Time, Newsweek, the uh, TV specials on the History Channel, purporting to tell us who Jesus really was. The implication, of course, being that the early church and the Gospels lied to us about him. Uh, it's a mystery that these things come out of Christmas and Easter. You know why at that time? Um, for many people, these stories are, in fact, I would say for most people, these stories are their sole encounter with what, with what has come to be known in biblical scholarship as historical Jesus studies. It's a vast question, any facet of which could serve as a topic for a graduate seminar. Uh, and so to try to do it justice in the brief time allotted to me would be foolish. Uh, so I have a much more modest aim this evening. What I want to do is to offer you one way to engage this question, uh, I think intelligently and critically. My approach to the question has two basic presuppositions that you should be aware of, um, neither of which are original to me. Uh, I think originality is a little bit overrated. Um, no, seriously. Uh, Stanley Arawas, who taught theology at Divinity School for a number of years, and he's still an emeritus professor, uh, is known to say that if you think you have an original thought, you just forgot where you read it. Um, and that's, yeah, I've found that to be the case in my experience. Um, so my two, pres two presuppositions are this. First, um, if the Jesus of history, the Jesus who walked the dusty roads of Galilee and Jerusalem, 2,000 years ago wasn't something very much like Jesus as presented in the Gospels, then Christianity is a sham, and I should find a new outfit and something else to do with my life. <laughs> um, Pope Benedict XVI says basically the same thing, much more eloquently, uh, in the forward to the first volume of his Jesus of Nazareth books. He says that uh, faith in Jesus as the Son of God, what does that mean if there's not some connection with the flesh and blood man whom the Gospels describe? My second presupposition, though, is that on the other hand, uh, Christian faith is not based on, and never has been based on, a historical reconstruction. Um, good arguments can be made for the historical reliability of the Gospels, and I intend to make a few of those arguments in the third part of this talk, but the Christian faith does not rest on historical reconstruction. With those two presuppositions in mind, and they're not just presuppositions, I'll try to make some arguments for them uh, over the course of the talk, uh, I want to do three things tonight. First, I want to talk a bit about two other presuppositions that guide much modern historical Jesus studies, where those presuppositions came from and how they've influenced the field, how people address the question. Second, I'd like to talk a bit about the nature of the Gospels themselves and their relation to history. What is it that the Gospels are actually telling us about this man who walked the earth 2,000 years ago? And then finally, in the third part of the talk, I will give a very brief, uh, kind of bare-bones sketch of some of the things that I think we can know about the Jesus of history and how and why we can know them. Uh, I don't mean it to be exhaustive in any sense. Really, all I want to do is to show that much of the material in the Gospels, we can actually trust and get a good sense of what Jesus of Nazareth was up to. Um, so the bottom line for me is that historical Jesus studies has an important place in the intellectual life and in coming to know Jesus, but it has a very limited role from the perspective of, Christ of Christian faith. It really has a narrow apologetic role, uh, basically to affirm that there is a connection between the Jesus of the Gospels and the Jesus who walked there 2,000 years ago. So first, uh, the two basic presuppositions of modern historical Jesus research. Uh, just a cursory glance at most surveys of historical Jesus studies would lead one to believe that interest in Jesus as a figure in history began in the 18th century or so with the Enlightenment. 
um, almost everyone dates the beginning of historical Jesus studies to a man named Hermann Samuel Reimarx, who's a German scholar of the 18th century. And in doing this, they're taking their lead from the Swiss polymath Albert Schweitzer. Have any of you heard of Albert Schweitzer? He's a brilliant guy. Um, why have one doctorate when you can do three? He had a doctorate in theology, a doctorate in musicology, and he was a medical doctor. And he went off to Africa to do missions, medical missions. He was a real underachiever in his day. <laughs> um, but Schweitzer wrote this book uh, that has been massively influential in historical Jesus studies uh, that is known in English by its title, The Quest of the Historical Jesus. In fact, that title kind of set the way that people talk about historical Jesus studies to this day. Uh, but the original German title uh, was von Reimarus zu Breda. That is, from Hermann Samuel Reimarus to William Breda. So Schweitzer said historical Jesus studies began with Reimarus. Uh, and everybody has pretty much followed him in that opinion since. Um, it's not totally accurate, though. Uh, there's a contemporary German Catholic biblical scholar named Marius Reiser who has argued that the basic questions that drive these debates about who Jesus was historically actually go all the way back to the early church, to this debate between the early Christian scholar Origen of Alexandria and the early anti-Christian polemicist uh, Celsus, or Celsus, um, so in historical Jesus studies, as in so many other things, there's nothing new under the sun. Now, even though uh, interest in Jesus as a figure in history didn't begin with the Enlightenment, there was a pretty decisive shift in how people approached the question. And that shift has to do with the philosophy of naturalism. That is the idea that miracles do not, because in fact they cannot, happen. This was an idea that was very much in the air in the 18th century, thanks in part to the English Jesus, and it spread all over Europe. Uh, and it led a man like Hermann Samuel Reimarus to say that, no, the miracles didn't happen. Um, and that uh, idea, whether one accepts it personally or not, has guided the way that most people approach the question to this day. Uh, the Protestant philosopher C. Stephen Evans, I don't know if he coined the term, but he certainly uses this term, methodological naturalism. And by that, he means that even if a person actually believes that miracles can happen, uh, people will still approach the question of who Jesus was, presuming that they don't, or at least setting the question to the side. Um, a great example of this is one of my former teachers when I did my Master's in Notre Dame, Catholic priest John Meyer, who's a brilliant man, excellent, excellent scholar. Uh, the second volume of his <laughs> huge series called The Marginal Jew devotes hundreds and hundreds of pages uh, to the miracle traditions in the Gospels. But he won't say either way whether these things actually happen or not, because he says that's kind of out of bounds. You can't uh, answer that question. Uh, and if this is true of a Catholic priest like John Meyer, how much more so is it going to be of many of the scholars that the History Channel and National Geographic and Time go to when they're asking these questions? Now, this might seem like a bit of a tangent, but it actually gets to the root of how scholars approach the question of who Jesus was today. Because the logic is pretty easy to see, right? If miracles don't happen, and the Gospels report that Jesus performed miracles, well, then the evangelists were making things up. And if they were making things up about the fantastic things that Jesus allegedly did, who's to say that they didn't make other things up about what Jesus was up to? And so because of that, then you have to sit through the Gospels to try to figure out what was authentic and what was inauthentic. And that's been the name of the game since at least the 18th century. 
in trying to figure out who Jesus is. Um, now, this is true both of non-believing scholars and also of believing scholars. A man like N.T. Wright, who, from whose work I have benefited greatly, also, for the most part, sets aside the question of um, miracles and kind of sets it to one side and just asks, what can we know historically setting aside that question? Um, now, that being the case, what historical Jesus studies will typically do is it will offer a reconstruction of who Jesus was, the kind of life of Jesus. And inevitably, this is going to be an alternative to the Gospels, because the Gospels also present a kind of life of Jesus, in fact, four different kinds of lives of Jesus. Now, this isn't a problem for a man like Reinhardt, who abandoned the Christian faith, understandably, given his philosophical presuppositions. But the danger for Christian scholars, uh, and Wright, I think, is a great example of this, is that you can set up your own reconstruction, if not uh, as something more valuable than the Gospels, then something at least as valuable and at least as authoritative as the Gospels. At least that's what Wright seems to suggest every now and then. Now, Wright makes other arguments for why uh, one should do historical Jesus studies. And one of the arguments that he makes is uh, to combat docetism. Docetism was an early belief that uh, Jesus wasn't actually human, that he only appeared to be a human being, but didn't actually take on our flesh and blood. And so because Christians believe that Jesus was a real figure in history, um, you have to study history to know something about him. On the surface, I think this is a plausible argument, uh, and I certainly wouldn't deny the value of historical study of Jesus, but history can't tell us whether or not Jesus was real flesh and blood. It would be perfectly possible for somebody to say that God kind of manifested himself in some way, um, and actually people thought that they saw him, and that there were real interactions in history, uh, but he was a natural flesh and blood human being. The other reason, though, that uh, I don't think you can base, so one of the things that Wright suggests, in some of his writings at least, is that theologians need to um, base their theology, at least in part, on historical reconstructions of who Jesus was. Uh, and one of the problems with that is that historical reconstructions come and go. Like the scholarly writings, what was plausible in 2019 isn't necessarily going to be plausible in 2039. Uh, to take an example from the 19th century, one common explanation of a miracle like, say, Jesus walking on the water was that he happened to find a sandbar that made it all the way out to where the disciples were in the boat. Um, it's silly. I think uh, the, the legend hypothesis, the pure skeptic, I think is much more plausible than this notion that there was a sandbar. Uh, or have any of you heard of this group, the Jesus Seminar? Yes. Okay, a couple have. Um, you don't hear about them a lot these days, though, right? Like, they were a lot more important in the 90s when I was an undergraduate, mid to late 90s. These days, you don't really hear much about them. So these kind of scholarly reconstructions come and go. Uh, but the church has never based its faith on historical reconstruction. It has always based its faith on the testimony of the Gospels and of the other writings of the New Testament. So just to briefly recap kind of the basic point of this first part of the talk, it's that naturalism, the philosophical idea of naturalism, that miracles can't happen, um, led to an understandable suspicion of the Gospels, and this led to historical Jesus, well, it didn't be historical Jesus studies, but it 
uh, heavily influenced how historical Jesus studies is done. Uh, some of the more honest scholars will acknowledge this. A man like Park Ehrman, who talked down the road from where Dr. Spiegel, Dr. Drango, and I studied, um, he says, yes, it's a philosophical presupposition. I just don't believe that miracles happen. And I respect that. I think that's a position of integrity. I disagree with him, but uh, it's perfectly fair. Um, other scholars aren't quite as honest, and they will present their reconstructions as simply the results of scientific study. Uh, and so that's something to bear in mind, uh, particularly on these specials, like on the History Channel and these articles and such. But is, uh, is the disbelief in miracles the only reason that people question the Gospels? Uh, I would say no. And I think in order to answer the question, you have to consider what kind of documents the Gospels actually are. Uh, many of these scholars who you'll see on these specials are just generally in the field of New Testament who are pretty skeptical will have a common background. That is, they will have come from a fundamentalist background. Not all of them, and I'm not using, I don't intend to use the term pejoratively as it usually, usually is used. I'm simply using it descriptively for people who take the, the, the Bible, generally speaking, very literalistically. And for people like that, uh, tensions in the Bible can cause a crisis of faith. Um, it's a common story. A young man or woman who's in love with Jesus and with the Gospels goes off to a Bible college, and they do their master's, and they want to go out and enter the fray. And so they go to some institute of higher learning, and they lose their faith. Oftentimes, an Ivy League school, but not necessarily just there. Um, and the difficulty is that, uh, so it's easy to maintain that there aren't any tensions or differences in the Gospels or in the Bible in general if you're in a group of like-minded people. Uh, but if you get to another place where they're not quite so congenial, and they begin to point out all these differences between the Gospels, and you're dead set on there being not a single contradiction, chances are you're going to lose your faith. This is one of the stories that Bart Aaron tells in one of his books, uh, in the introduction of one of his books, of how he gradually drifted from the Christian faith. Um, and the problem with this is that I, don't, I think it's a too unnuanced approach at, uh, or a way of looking at the Gospels. It doesn't take the Gospels for what they actually are. What do I mean by this? Well, let's take a very easy example. The Last Supper, kind of an important event in the lives of early Christians, the last thing Jesus did before he was handed over to his death and all that. Um, it was obviously an important event for the early Christians because it appears in all four Gospels. Uh, as well as Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. Uh, and yet, within the accounts of the Last Supper, uh, well, first of all, John doesn't actually recount the words of institution. And then there are kind of two streams of traditions. You have a version that appears in Matthew and Mark that are very similar, and you have a version that appears in Luke and First Corinthians, which are also very similar. But they're kind of different from one another. Matthew, for example, says something to the effect of, I'm not, I don't have it memorized, but take, eat, this is my body, Take, this is the cup of my blood, the blood of the covenant, poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Luke's version, and the version in 1 Corinthians says, take this, all of you, and eat of it, uh, for this is my body, uh, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then I'll say, this, is the, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So different accounts. What are we to make of that? Are they just making things up? 
Were they uh, just kind of playing fast and loose with things? No. To quote John, well, not to quote, but to paraphrase John Meyer once again, he points this out in the very first volume of his book, Marginal Jew, uh, and he says, obviously this event was pretty important for the early Christians. It was preserved in four or five different early Christian writings. But just as obviously, they weren't concerned with getting the verbatim details. Right? They were more interested in the substance than in the exact wording. What they were doing is they were recounting the events, but shaping them to bring out the inner significance of those events. And the Last Supper is just one example of many. Matthew and Luke have different versions of the Lord's Prayer, kind of an important prayer for Christians. They have different versions of the Beatitudes. Now, it's possible that some of these variations, for example, the Beatitudes, in theory, it's possible that Jesus said these things on many occasions and maybe they're recording different variants. But something like the Last Supper, it really only happened once. Uh, and so my point is not, again, that the evangelists are playing fast and loose or inventing things out of whole cloth. It's that the Gospels aren't uh, attempting to give us verbatim accounts of what happened. And if you just think about the difference in technology in the first century as opposed to today, you'll see why that is necessarily the case. The printing press hadn't even been invented back then, to say nothing of like audio recording devices, that sort of thing. Human memory being what it is, you're not going to have an exact replica. That doesn't mean that the gist of what they're recounting isn't reliable. It means that they can't give an exact account of what happened. This is true on the micro level. It's also true on the macro level. Uh, some of you probably know that the first three Gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are commonly referred to as the synoptic gospels because you can see the three together. In fact, if you line them up in columns, you can see that they're telling the same basic story. Often they'll have verbatim agreement, but then there will be variations. But they arrange the material in different order. Some have stories that don't appear in others, uh, so there's a lot of variation. And so given this, we can't, they don't give us uh, an exact and correct chronology of Jesus' life, as one would expect say, in a modern biography, there's an obvious reason for that. The Gospels weren't modern biographies. <laughs> they were written like 2,000 years ago. Uh, they share some characteristics with ancient lives, so these texts that are called bioi, these lives of like great heroes, uh, and those writings operated under different sort of uh, literary forms. Right? So they would be arranged like maybe anecdotally or in various ways. They weren't interested in giving us an exact chronology of what Jesus did and when. Uh, again, that doesn't mean that they were unfaithful to who this man was, but they don't give us what we hope for and expect in a modern biography. So does that mean we can't know anything about the Jesus of history? It should be obvious from what I've been saying, no. Uh, and so in this third and final part of the talk, I'd like to give, again, just a brief sketch of what some of the things that I think that we can know about the Jesus of history. And again, I don't mean this to be exhaustive to say these are the only things that we can know. I just wanted to give you a representative sample of the kinds of things that we can know and how that can inform how we understand what Jesus was up to in the first century. So first, um, a methodological point. Uh, a number of recent scholars have suggested that, well, let me back up. 
Um, what many scholars in the past did, and some still do to this day, for example, to invoke his name for the third time, John Meyer, uh, what many scholars did for a time is they would go like episode by episode in the Gospels and try to determine whether it was authentic or not, and then kind of build up the case uh, in that way. Uh, some more recent scholars, someone like Dale Allison, for example, who teaches at Princeton Theological Seminary, he has suggested that a better way to approach the question of Jesus in history is to look for themes across the gospel traditions. And so you have, if you have the same theme appearing in a variety of strands of tradition in different forms and all that, it seems likely that this was the kind of thing that Jesus did, whether or not any one individual episode actually happened as it's recorded in the Gospels. And I think this is a much more reasonable way of approaching the Gospels as historical sources. So, uh, what can we know about Jesus? So, there's... You can know basic, very bare bones, bones chronology, right? He was born. We can be pretty sure that was the first thing that happened in his life, right? Uh, at some point in his adulthood, he was baptized by John the Baptist, at which point he began his public career. Um, gradually, tensions mounted between Jesus and at least some of the Jewish leaders, leading to his last days in Jerusalem, uh, where he probably did some kind of action in the temple that got him in trouble, and he was crucified by the Romans and died. Uh, and I would say rose again, but I wouldn't say that you can prove that historically, but I certainly would affirm it. Beyond that, what can we know? Well, first, uh, I'd like to say just at the beginning, it's very interesting that the baptism by John is one of the first events, probably the first event in Jesus' public life, and the Last Supper is the last one before his passion. Um, and I'll come back to why that's important towards the end of this section. But how can we know that Jesus was baptized by John? Well, there are a few arguments that you can make. One is that all four of the Gospels uh, recorded, <laughs> and so it seems unlikely that all four would record this thing, just make it up out of thin air. Especially if you consider, if you consider it that, in some ways, Jesus being baptized by John could be seen as kind of embarrassing to early Christians in at least two different ways. One is that, uh, at least as the Gospels portray it, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And so Jesus going to be baptized by John could be perceived as him acknowledging that he had sins of which to repent. Now, most early Christians, in fact, I would say probably no early Christian would be willing to suggest that, to admit that. Uh, additionally, Jesus being baptized by John could also be perceived as uh, an inferior going to uh, a superior. Um, and again, the early Christians certainly didn't think Jesus was inferior to John, and yet you have this story preserved. In fact, many scholars think that's why Matthew also has this dialogue between Jesus and John, where John says, um, I'm the one who should be baptized by you. They're making it abundantly clear that no, actually Jesus is the superior. Um, in addition to that, I mean, John and Jesus are connected throughout the gospel traditions, from his baptism, throughout the gospels, well into the Acts of the Apostles. And it seems unlikely that the um, early church would make something like that up. Now, what's the significance of Jesus being baptized by John? Well, the Gospels present John's baptism uh, in connection with this section from the prophet Isaiah, this uh, text that says, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. 
And this section of Isaiah, so the second half of Isaiah, which many scholars think was written during the Babylonian exile, um, speaks to the Jews in the Babylonian exile, promising them that they would return to the land of Israel. Uh, now, that had happened by the first century, but at least some Jews in the first century believed that it hadn't been kind of fully accomplished. I wouldn't say that all Jews thought that, but there were at least some. Uh, and so portraying the baptism in this way seems to connect it with this expectation that God was going to bring about this return from exile. It's interesting also that this section of Isaiah draws a lot on language from the Exodus. The Exodus, of course, being like the foundational narrative for the people of Israel, this act when God rescued the Israelites out of Egypt. Um, and the way the Gospels portray it, they seem to suggest that John went to the far side of the Jordan, and so people would have to go to the far side of the Jordan, go into the water and be baptized, and then re-enter the land. And for a first century Jew, the symbolism would not have been lost on them. It basically was reenacting Israel's entry into the Promised Land after the Exodus. So the baptism, first of all, suggests to us that there's some connection between Jesus' uh, career, ministry, whatever you want to call it, and this expectation of God's fulfillment of these promises. A second uh, aspect of Jesus' ministry that seems fairly firm is that Jesus chose 12 men, 12 of his disciples, to be part of his inner circle. Again, it's something that all of the Gospels recount. It also, uh, Paul re refers to the 12 in 1 Corinthians. Um, in addition to which, uh, they don't really play a huge role later on in early Christianity. Yes, they are part of his inner circle, but uh, and in the beginning of the Acts of the Apostles, there's a big deal made out of how you need a replacement for Judas so that there are 12. But by the time you get to the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, they're nowhere to be seen. So it seems unlikely that the early Christians would have made up this, this group of 12 to you know, grab authority for themselves. It obviously didn't seem to work very well. Um, so how does this relate to this question of the New Exodus? Well, the number 12 would obviously have been significant for ancient Jews, right? Because uh, historically or initially in the Exodus, there would have been 12 tribes. And so these 12 men could be seen as representing um, the 12 tribes of Israel, that Jesus was kind of reconstituting Israel around himself. Um, another reason uh, why it seems likely that Jesus actually uh, did this is there's a saying in Matthew 19 where Jesus says to the 12 um, that in the new creation, in the new world, um, you will sit on 12 tribes judging, the sorry, on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, at this point in the Gospel, one of those twelve is Judas, <laughs> who, according to the Gospel, betrayed him. So it's unlikely that they would make up this promise that seems to go unfulfilled when Judas doesn't, um, well, when Judas betrays Jesus and abandons him. All right, a third aspect of Jesus' ministry that would go against the grain of much historical Jesus studies, although not every last scholar, um, is I suggest that uh, it seems likely that Jesus performed what the Gospels describe as mighty deeds, or deeds of power, what we typically call miracles. As I mentioned in the first part, uh, 
It's not the only reason to deny them, but one very common reason to deny them is the philosophical presupposition that miracles do not happen. Well, if you set aside that presupposition, there is lots of evidence in the Gospels that Jesus performed these miracles. It's all over all four Gospels. In addition to that, um, some of Jesus' opponents didn't deny that he performed miracles. They simply offered alternative explanations. So the Gospels suggest that at least some of the Pharisees said he was casting out demons by the power of Satan. Um, Celsus, this early anti-Christian polemicist, likewise said, well, yeah, he did them, but he did them in these strange ways. Um, so one, uh, I don't think the philosophical presupposition is a legitimate one, and if you set that aside, there's good reason to believe that whether or not any individual story as reported in the Gospels happened exactly as it was described, it seems likely that Jesus did some pretty amazing things. And this also fits in with this hope for the new exodus. Uh, there's an episode in the Gospels where John the Baptist sends some of his disciples to ask Jesus about his ministry and if he's the one that they're expecting. And what does Jesus say? He says, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and blessed is he who takes no offense at me. This is uh, a loose quotation from the prophet Isaiah, another uh, oracle that speaks to this hope that God is going to one day restore Israel. And so Jesus is um, performing these miracles that fits with this other data that we've seen, choosing 12 men, being baptized in the Jordan. All right, the next point that I think seems fairly well established, most people would agree, would agree upon, is that Jesus preached about the kingdom of God. It is all over the Gospels, but certainly the Synoptic Gospels. It's less common in John, but it's even there in a couple of points. And so it seems undeniable. It's just, it's all over, not only all over the Gospels, in all sorts of different forms, sayings, parables, all sorts of different parts of the Gospel. This notion of the kingdom of God, likewise, can be associated with these hopes for God's restoration of Israel. There are two different prophetic texts, or rather books, not just specific texts, that speak to this. Again, the prophet Isaiah uh, has these oracles where he says, How beautiful on the mountain are the feet of the one who brings good news, who proclaims to Zion, your God reigns. This notion of God returning as king. And so when Jesus goes about proclaiming the kingdom of God, it seems likely that's related to this hope. Um, similarly, there are two chapters in the book of the prophet Daniel that uh, speak, they don't have the exact phrase kingdom of God, but they speak to this hope for this reality of God's kingdom. So Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7 uh, in these two chapters, uh, the character Daniel has these visions, which are interpreted as these four kind of uh, pagan kingdoms that overrun Israel in succession. But then after these four kingdoms, uh, this fifth kingdom, which by implication is the kingdom of God, destroys all these other kingdoms and spreads throughout the world. Daniel was a very important text in first century Judaism, as was this section of Isaiah. And so it seems likely, again, that Jesus' preaching of the kingdom has to do with this hope for Israel's restoration. So all of these different um, aspects of Jesus' ministry, uh, the baptism, choosing 12, miracles, uh, preaching about the kingdom, they all point to this fulfillment of these prophetic hopes. Um, 
One of the things that you'll hear uh, on these specials frequently, like on the History Channel or in the articles in Time, in Newsweek and such, is that Jesus didn't see himself as the Messiah, or didn't proclaim himself as the Messiah. Um, now, there's a grain of truth in that, in that he didn't go about just telling everyone, by the way, I'm the Messiah, in case you're wondering. However, there is a good reason to believe that he did see himself as having a special role that one could describe as being the Messiah. It didn't necessarily match uh, many of the expectations of the time, but um, one of the professors that Dr. Spiegel and I had classes with, E.P. Sanders, one of the monumental scholars of the 20th century, says in his book, Jesus and Judaism, referring to, again, this notion that uh, Jesus tells the disciples that he'll sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Sanders says, well, if his disciples are going to be on 12 thrones, what does that suggest about Jesus? And Sanders suggests, I'm paraphrasing here, but he says, it seems likely that he's going to be over the 12, and Messiah is a perfectly good term to describe that, even if he wasn't going to be a warrior as many people expected. Not everybody, but many people expected. <coughs> okay, let's talk about the Last Supper. Um, I mentioned at the beginning that this uh, is fitting that Jesus' ministry began with his baptism and it ends basically with the Last Supper, and then he goes to his passion and death. A lot of the themes that I've been going over uh, in this third part appear again with respect to the Last Supper. Jesus says to his disciples, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine again until I drink it new with you in the kingdom of God. And the words that he says over the bread and over the wine, uh, whichever version you take, whether you take Matthews or Luke's, uh, associate this act with a new covenant. And the new covenant was, well, first the language can be pointing back to uh, the Exodus when God makes the initial covenant with Israel through Moses, but then also to this hope that you see in the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 31, who promises this new covenant for Israel. And in addition to this, uh, the Last Supper um, you can see it as a prophetic act, as a symbolic act. The prophets of Israel were known for doing these acts. Um, Isaiah uh, walked around naked for three years uh, to kind of symbolize how the Jerusalem was going to be destroyed and they were going to be let off into captivity. Um, Ezekiel, uh, who was one of the first in the early group of the exiles to Babylon, uh, symbolized uh, Israel's, or the Jews' exile from Jerusalem to show what was going to happen. And similarly, the words that Jesus speaks over the bread and over the wine symbolize what he anticipated was going to happen to him the very next day. Now, Pope Benedict suggests in his um, Jesus of Nazareth um, that without an expectation of the resurrection, um, the words at the last supper would be kind of meaningless. It really wouldn't make any sense. So Jesus seems to have expected that he was also going to rise again. And all of this, again, comes back to this hope for a new exodus, for God fulfilling his promises in the Old Testament. Um, so that's a very bare-bones sketch of some of the things that I think we can know about Jesus historically and some of the reasons why I think we can. So in conclusion, I'd like to say a little bit uh, about another common claim that's made um, in some of these stories. It's commonly said that Jesus didn't intend to found the church. 
Now again, there's a way, there's a truth in that claim. If what most people mean by that is that Jesus didn't intend to found a new separate institution completely different from Israel and first century Judaism, to which I would say yes, I agree completely. <laughs> but the fact that he gathered 12 men around himself, the fact that he uh, instituted this ritual that became central for the early Christians seems to suggest that he was, he was instituting what you could call a renewal movement within Judaism of the time. And it's not surprising, given some of the things that you see in the prophet Isaiah, that gradually this movement spread out throughout the Mediterranean world and came to include Gentile believers as well. So, uh, what has the historical Jesus to do with the Church of Christ? Um, a great deal, I would say. I would say that the Jesus uh, who walked around uh, Galilee in the first century and Jerusalem, um, who chose 12 men to be around him, who preached about the kingdom of God, and who ate with outcasts and sinners, is the same Jesus described to us in the Gospels who founded this renewal movement that has continued to this day. However, we don't encounter this Jesus primarily through our historical reconstructions, Throughout the church's history, we have encountered this Jesus through the authoritative texts that some of his disciples wrote, and through the sacrificial meal that he left us on the night before he was betrayed. 